Olive Branch podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anwar Mahajni. In this podcast, I interview activists with ties to Israel and Palestine who identify as peace activists and are working on ending Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. Today, I interview uh, Ron Skolnik, a writer, editor, analyst, and translator. He serves as an independent consultant for Partners for Progressive Israel. Ron, thank you very much for agreeing to be interviewed here. I hope I um, kind of introduced you or provided some background on your work, but of course you can also expand. So my next question would be, um, I was wondering if you could tell me more about your background, your activism. How did you come to do the work you're doing um, today? Um, so first of all, thank you for inviting me, Australia. A pleasure and I, um, I congratulate you on the podcast and, and wish you success. Um, in terms of my peace activism, I'm, I, I almost, I'm, I'm reluctant at even referring to myself as a peace activist because sort of an accidental kind of thing. I grew up, you know, kind of middle-class, um, middle-class Jewish, Queens, New York, kind of not really involved. I was a... It was the late 60s, early 70s, so I was sort of progressive by default because everybody in my generation wanted to end the war and such, but I wouldn't have defined myself as a peace activist and certainly not on Israel-Palestine, which was um, kind of one of the last things on my mind. Um, I, I remember when the, um, just, just to give you an example, I remember when the um, October 1973 war started and you know at the time it was only network channels, we were pre-cable. Uh, and I was watching the World Series, which my New York Mets were playing in, it was October. And they stopped the game to update us with an urgent, you know, update as a war going on in the Middle East. And my, you know, my reaction was, I can't believe they've broken into the game. I was 14. Um, so I wasn't like six. So Israel was not um, a major concern of mine. So I got to the game, you know, I didn't grow up with it. It's not in my genes. Um, I, I didn't have relatives uh, in Israel at the time. It's not the kind of thing my parents talked about. Um, but I made friends with this, um, this guy who was in a youth movement called Hashomer Atzeir. Um, which at the time we referred to as a socialist Zionist youth movement today. It's called progressive Zionist. They dropped the socialist. Um, and that got me involved initially um, on questions of Israel. And we didn't even call it Palestine. We said Israel and the occupation, Israel and the Palestinians. And then eventually I, I moved to Israel, which we called, you know, made Aliyah at the time. Uh, and I lived in Israel um, for kibbutz. various circumstances got me to Israel and lived there for 27 years. And, you know, uh, at that point, you sort of just get involved, not as something that's over there, but is over here. So, um, I mean, I, I joined Hashem Aratzir, I was 15. And then, you know, you look up to all these youth leaders. And I remember going to a demonstration about um, against settlement, which I barely knew about, but it was 1975, and more land was being given by the state to the Gushenuni movement. And, and so these things started to, um, they formed some sort of, you know, foundation of knowledge that I had. 
Um, but then I moved there and then everything just feels different because now you're in that space and things are going on around you. So um, four months, three, four months after I moved to Israel, um, Anwar Sadat came to Israel. And a year after that, the Peace Now movement was born. People think of Peace Now today as an Israel-Palestine based on that. It was actually set up. Um, the, the initial motivation was to get Menachem Begin to make the compromises needed to reach a peace agreement with Egypt. So I remember I was at the first, there were Peace Now rallies throughout the country, and they were all sort of pretty small affairs, but I was in, I was studying in, in the University of Haifa, and so I went to Gan Ha'em, uh, this park in, in Haifa, and that's where there were probably like 300 people there, and I went there, and that's how I started to get um, involved. And then when I finished my BA, I had to go to the army, and that was a real... Um, that was a real eye opener because it was my first, I was, you know, in the university, I was with new immigrants, then I moved to a kibbutz, artsy kibbutz, a sort of progressive, um, liberal uh, kibbutz, and um, surrounded by people who were not, you know, we didn't always speak politics, but I was not particularly challenged um, from, certainly from the right. And then I went to the army and it was just a, Again, not everyone there was an out and out racist, but there were enough examples there to make me realize, huh, there, there's stuff here that I haven't experienced before. It's not, not as rosy as, you know, the sort of image of kibbutz in Israel. And um, so there was that. And then there was, um, when I was about five, six months into the army, um, there was an attempted assassination of Israel's ambassador to London, Shlomo Argov. Um, and right after that, Israel decided this is the time we're going to invade Lebanon. And it's the end of what had been basically a one year ceasefire with the PLO. Uh, at the time, the PLO um, sort of dominated southern Lebanon and there were intermittent rocket attacks and Israeli responses or Israeli attacks and PLO responses. And all of a sudden, that ended in Israel when I was in the army and Israel was invading Lebanon. And then there was a demonstration by Peace Now, 60,000 people. I was in the army, but I heard, oh, there's this big demonstration um, going on in Tel Aviv against the army. And I'm reading about it more, even though we didn't have internet, but we did have Ala Mishmar, the, you know, the paper of the Mapam party in Haaretz. And, and I'm reading about it more and I'm learning. And then I learned more after the war. There were books written about the war. Zev Shif and Ahud Yari, I remember, wrote um, a book in Hebrew called Milchemet Sholal, I don't remember what it was called, but basically means the war that led us astray, that the entire, um, the assassination of Shlomo Argov wasn't even by the PLO. It was by a splinter group that opposed the PLO and that I'm now being thrust into an occupation. I was there sort of toward the end of the actual war war and then I got involved in the occupation part of Lebanon. And I was being thrust into this on completely um, disingenuous circumstances. And, and that, I think for anybody, I think there are wonderful people who their principles drive them, but I think for most people, their own experience, their own self-interest really drives even more. And you have to sort of, uh, you know, uh, jumping into the activist part, because I'm kind of an accidental activist, my perspective is if you don't speak to people in terms of their own self-interest, you're really running up a, a down escalator. So that sort of was another step up. 
of I can't believe I'm my life is being put in danger, as well as the people that I'm occupying now. Um, and again, experiences in the army in Lebanon where um, taking over people's homes and that just whole idea of just a sort of that, uh, you know, war is war, but there's a certain crassness to war um, that I experienced personally. So I experienced the danger, but I also experienced the idea of being on the side that holds the power. Um, and it was not a comfortable experience. And then later I got involved with other things. You know, I, I later did my master's in, in, in a lot, did a lot of courses on Israel-Arab conflict and learned about, read the new historians, read about 47, 48, um, different narratives. And, and then, so that it just became a more um, textured level of learning about narrative, learning about the fact that, that history is not at all. I sort of knew it was not simple, but I knew it was not simple from the Israeli side. And now I'm like, oh, okay, there's a completely other way. I don't necessarily have to agree with it, but there's a completely other way of looking at the issues that I was raised with. Um, and that more or less brings me to the present. I mean, I left Israel in 2004 and started working um, on Israel-Palestine issues in, in various um, various circumstances. And the first thing that I did, uh, the first significant thing that I did is I, I worked at Brandeis University for a summer working with high school kids on um, the narratives of the Israel Israeli-Palestinian conflict and working on the issue of multiple narratives. And it was mostly Jewish um, kids, but not all, um, working with a good friend of mine and we taught um, a summer program that was based on the idea that there are multiple narratives. And, and again, so that's cemented. And then I worked with Partners for Progressive Israel and I'm, um, I'm a volunteer for J Street in my local congressional district. And, and I continue to apply those things. And in my writing, I wrote for Jewish Currents for many years. Um, I, I, you know, and Twitter is just a form of writing that's clipped and abbreviated. Um, if it's done well, it's, it's good writing, but done short. Um, so yeah, that's where it brings me to today. <laughs> Sorry for that very uh, extended oh, no, you uh, don't have to trip apologize. through my biography. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to apologize for it. I think it's fascinating. And I, I, I hear themes that keep emerging from these interviews that I'm conducting. One of them is kind of the, the power of stories and narratives, the story we tell ourselves about the conflict and the stories we're being told about the conflict, right? who's right and who's wrong, um, who's the victim and who's not. And it's always all about identifying who's powerful and who's with the least power, right? And where do we stand there and how comfortable we are with that position. And then of course, education, reading books and reading and listening to other people talk about the conflict seems to be essential in uh, kind of forming a political consciousness. Um, that leads to activism eventually. Um, so you talked about progressive for Israel and I was wondering for people who don't know, uh, Partners for Progressive Israel, for people who don't know what the organization does, could you give us a little bit of a background on it? What do you do with the organization and why did you choose to work with the organization if that's okay with you? Sure, um, so Partners for Progressive Israel is, um, and it might be useful to say that its previous name up until about 10 years ago was Merits USA. So the organization was formed, uh, there's a long organizational um, history and you can find it on 
Wikipedia because I contributed to the Wikipedia entry that talks about its history because there's different organizations that combined with each other. Mm -hmm. I won't go through all that now, um, but I will say that from the early 90s, there was an organization, various names that were um, both spreading the message of the Merits Party, which is, you know, you know Merits as, as well, <laughs> better than I do. Um, let's just call it liberal, generally pro-peace, but still sort of part of the Zionist spectrum and predominantly Jewish. But there was no talk in the late 80s, early 90s about true sort of Arab Jewish parties. It was much more, we were in the age when we were looking for Arab Jewish coexistence rather than shared society. In other words, there's going to be these separate entities, but we'll get along rather than be together. And Meretz was part of that, was sort of the left edge of, of the Zionist spectrum. Um, and there was an organization that was set up in the States to both promote its values, to gain an audience amongst um, Jewish Americans and, and American you know, uh, policymakers, um, but also when it was still legal in Israel, raise money. Uh, Israel at, at that time, you were allowed to raise money abroad and there was part of a separate element of the organization. So that's what it started doing. And then when that fundraising element got taken away, it stayed in the idea of let's expose the leaders of merits to America, let's expose their values. Um, today, the organization does um, a lot of webinars. In fact, I, I, I run their webinars um, in my consultancy capacity. My main goal is to always try to find something a bit new in the conversation that people um, haven't been exposed to or haven't been exposed to in depth. You know, we, we draw from the mainstream media or we draw from the media that we proactively want to be with that gives us the stories that we're comfortable. And I try to the best I can to um, open up um, the idea to alternatives or dig deeper into stories that maybe get glanced over. And so that's one thing we do. We focus on um, uh, the nonprofit civil society sector in Israel and try to bring their stories through a program called Kolot, Voices of Hope. Kolot means voices in Hebrew, so it's a little bit of redundancy, but Kolot, Voices of Hope is about, um, is sort of an antidote to pessimism, an antidote to, oh, there can never be anything good coming out of that region that's caused a lot of people to grow weary, uh, you know, peace process fatigue, sometimes it's called. Um, and so we wanted to expose people to the idea that there's a lot of people who are still fighting on the ground and that they're worth learning about, they're worth supporting. And, and you know, if, if folks in Israel, and it's mostly Israel, but to an extent it's Israel-Palestine are not giving up, then, um, then, you know, you can give up here, but don't use them as an excuse. They haven't given up. Um, and then there's a social media presence there right now, a program called the Israel Symposium, which in the past was an in-person trip to Israel and Palestine. And because of the pandemic has now been shifted into a, a virtual trip to Israel and Palestine. And it just started yesterday actually with um, first session had members of Knesset from Meretz and the United Arab List uh, and labor. And then it had a, a session um, with groups like Standing Together and, and other people about should the Israel be looking to, should the left be looking to create a fully Jewish Arab party? So it's really a great program. Um, it's wonderful to do it in person, but it's so much easier 
<laughs> to do it online where you don't have to do the travel and, and Zoom has really, I think, revolutionized those type of conversations. So yeah, so so Merits is a sorry, Partners of Progressive Israel is um I call it a left Zionist educate political education movement. It also there's also a component of being involved in world Zionist organization politics, which is again, it's sort of its own little component that requires its own level of expertise. But for those who are interested, um, that's its own little segment of things to try to prevent the right from taking over or hege hegemony in, in, in the World Zionist Organization. But I won't go into that too much because it's kind of a little bit arcane. <laughs> Um, so it's fascinating to talk about the work you guys do, and I was wondering how does your philosophy or, or understanding of peace activism apply to the work you do? How do you define peace activism? What do you think is the most efficient way to do it? And do you think that the work you're doing is contributing to that uh, kind of the, the, your philosophy of what peace activism is? So uh, I'll do some I'll do some background again, just to sort of take, that will sort of take us, take me into, into the, uh, really answer the question. Um, when I was a teenager, I was in Hashimoto here and there people were talking about Marx and Trotsky a lot now to a certain extent. So I decided I was a Marxist and I read the Communist Manifesto, which is much easier to read than Das Kapital. Um, and I said, okay, I'm a Marxist and I didn't know exactly what it meant, but you know, it was a nice little, and then I, in high school, doing some academic work, read about something called evolutionary socialism and Edward Bernstein in Germany. And I'm like, huh, oh, okay. So things can work. There's different ways um, of getting to a goal. And I wasn't, wasn't overwhelmed by it, but it opened my mind to the fact that there's different ways of being, to being active, being an activist. My second little anecdote was when I worked as a, a political analyst for the British Embassy in Israel, um, late 90s to about 2000, early 2004. I worked with some great people and they were both in the political department there, what they call the chancery at the time, but also I, I had conversations with folks who were posted there from the military. And I remember one guy from the military saying to me, you know, Ron, the difference between the political wing and the embassy and the military people are there from you know the military side is that people on the political wing believe in, in making peace people on the military side believe in avoiding war and i thought that was really interesting mm -hmm. um because he said look and it's maybe i'm um imposing my own interpretation on exactly to what he said but basically my approach today is that competition of interests exists between human beings and groups of human beings, be that tribes or nations, be those nations um, imagined or real, however you want to put it, but how, in whatever kind of, of formats people divide themselves into, there are going to be competing interests and even within the group competing interests. So I tend to believe, and I'm not a, I don't imagine myself as um, you know, a, a, a true expert on anything. I'm not an expert psychologist and I don't style myself an expert philosopher, but my philosophy is that conflict is something to be minimized and not ended. I don't think that the competition and clash of interests can be removed. 
And so that to me is peace activism. It's creating, because compromise is unavoidable, in the absence of compromise, you're going to have mm -hmm. conflict. Um, you need to figure out ways of having compromise. But compromise can't also be a code word for letting one side dominate another. Uh, you know, Pax Romana is Rome imposing its will on other groups. So any word can just be a code word. Um, Two-state solution can be a code word. Peace can be a code word. Compromise can be a code word. So compromise needs to be fair, it needs to be just. And that becomes tricky because in reality, compromise is based on power relations, um, not on people, you know, people and groups aren't led by, by justice. Um, and I don't imagine that the groups that are in a weaker subordinate position who are dominated, I don't imagine them that as people, they are any better than the groups who are dominating. I think if the roles and power relations were reversed, so would be the nature of the, in other words, if the dominated group becomes the dominant group, then I assume that they will be, they will misuse that dominance just as much as the current dominant group. So I don't, I don't idealize any particular group in a struggle themselves. What I do do is I, I, I try to look at the power relations and say, if we can equalize to the greatest extent possible those power relations, then we can create compromises that will also be livable and legitimate, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, absolutely. It does. Um, and I think justice is an important word that keeps coming up, right? How do we compromise without undermining a just and equitable uh, solution, right? Or a kind of a situation where the powerful does not abuse the less powerful. And I think you make some uh, great points about that issue. Um, so how do you think we can find a just approach to creating kind of an equitable, equitable solution or an equitable, I don't know, I, I guess solution is a very, I don't, I'm not comfortable with the word, but I don't know what sure. other to use um, status quo <laughs> well it seems like we're stuck with the status quo well, that's today's status quo yeah yeah maybe a, a kind of an equitable situation where both people prosper on that small piece of land right uh without undermining anyone's right so kind of how do you think we can approach that from both sides Right. So um, my BA was in history and my master's was in history. So I have an interesting nuanced relation with the idea of history. Um, I love it, but I also hate it. Um, <laughs> and I delve into it because, hey, that's where I, you know, quote, make my living. In other words, that ability to draw on history helps me professionally. But history also is easy to weaponize. Sometimes it's weaponized by the weaker party and I don't begrudge that because when you don't have tanks and warplanes and you know you reach for the tools that you have and sometimes it's weaponized by the stronger party. But either way, either way, my gut tells me that solving today's issues 
are really hard. So you know, it's finding compromise amongst living human beings that that solving yesterday's issues make it um, exponentially harder. In other words, I think it's it's vital to first of all create solutions that work for people who are alive today. Now, those the, the question is, what if those people that are alive today, what if part of their todayness, their existentiality today is history? Um, then it, we get very tricky. But I would at least start with the fact that we can't undo historical injustices 100%. We can't undo the Nakba. We can't undo the Roman expulsion of Jews. We just can't undo those things. They happened. Mm -hmm. And if we're, if we're seeking to, if we, if we think that today's solutions mean on some, some level of magical thinking, and I think that that does, is what happened, not in terms of the practical solutions that people are offering, but in terms of the discourse, I think that there is a trap of magical thinking that if we're only pure enough in the way that we look at history, we can actually undo that history. You might convince me, not you personally, but one might convince me that the entire Zionist project was racist and that the first Jewish European should never have been let in, you know, back or in by the Ottoman Empire. It is possible, let's say you could, one convinces me of that. I don't know how that solves today's human beings who are living in the area between the river and the sea. I mean, I do think that it's, again, I think that perspective is, it's important for all perspectives to be part of the discourse, but there's a difference between the discourse and solutions. Um, and I'm, I'm not claiming that I have the right mixture and balance. I'm, you know, I'm feeling my way just like anybody else um, through this, because then it becomes a question of at what point do historical injustices become reversible and when do they become irreversible? And I don't have a 100% answer. Um, mm -hmm. Is what um, European settlers did in North America to Native um, Americans, is that reversible or irreversible? Because our decision on that informs then what we're trying to do in the present. I would think that most people would say that today it's irreversible, but you know, uh, but that doesn't mean that there aren't issues of reparations. For example, slavery is ir irreversible. That doesn't mean there aren't things we can't do that are informed, even if the actual event is irreversible. And that's how I try to look at Israel and Palestine, um, especially when it comes to questions of. Um, should there be a state that's that's majority Jewish? Mm -hmm. um, you know, my answer is I'm not in 1946 with the Anglo-American Committee. I'm now. Now I know that I'm informed more by the Jewish Zionist narrative. Nonetheless, it's hard for me to get my head around the idea of undoing what was done over 70 years. Does that mean that um, we shouldn't learn about the Nakba? We shouldn't, there shouldn't be reparations. I don't, I don't have all the solutions. Of course not. We should learn about those things. I just don't think that we can reverse in mm -hmm. that sense. We can't make the Nakba not have happened. Um, 
And if somebody present, I'm open, listen, I'm open. If somebody presents a case to me that 750,000, a million, two million Palestinians can come back to where they had been, I'm actually willing to look at it if it solves the, um, the conflict. But I do go by the idea that um, old conflicts can't be solved at the cost of starting new conflicts. I don't think that that's a, or creating new injustices. So I don't have an absolute answer, um, but that's generally how I try to take things. And I think I see your point about, you know, that certain things you can't really reverse, but I also see, and I think you addressed that, that it's important to learn about history, um, recognize it, understand it, and then um, see ways where we can create amends, right? And I think in the context of North America, you know, slave, the U.S., of course, especially in the U.S., there's a lot more work to be done with, you know, discrimination and inequalities that do exist in the country. But the first step, of course, is to acknowledge these issues, right? These injustices. And I think that's important um, Absolutely. To, for anyone to move forward, right? Absolutely. Um, so this was great. Um, I, I want to ask you a question. Uh, if you don't feel comfortable with it, you don't have to answer it. But you mentioned the, the word Zionism a lot, right? And, uh, you, you know, uh, first, do you identify as a Zionist? Two, do you think Zionism, um, you know, is contradictory to um, peace activism, because some people do view it that way. And then what do you think of anti-Zionism as equated with anti-Semitism? So I actually didn't mean to talk about <laughs> Zionism <laughs> because I think it's actually an unproductive word. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed in myself if I've been, except the fact that, that I mean, I grew up in a Zionist movement, but today I don't, I feel that there's not a lot of constructive work that gets done when we use the word Zionism. Because Zionism, and it sort of goes back just to what I was saying recently. First of all, there's so many different ways that people define Zionism and people use the one that's most convenient for them. So, you know, I don't begrudge people saying I'm anti-Zionist because Israel represents what Zionism has become and Zionism has become settlerism and therefore, I don't begrudge that, but my answer is let's talk about Israel-Palestine um, because then I feel that Zionism becomes, it's too easy with Zionism to say Zionism is the entire Zionist project and then you get back into the whole thing should never have happened. And you get lost into that magical thinking of maybe I can undo. So I think that removing the Zionism is actually a helpful thing. It's a helpful thing for Israel, not only for Palestine. Um, well, you know what? I don't wanna speak for Palestine. It's not my, not my place, but I think it's helpful for Israel actually to actually remove that from the discourse. We're here, this is a country, it's got people in it. Um, it's got people who are in the dominant ethnic category. It's got people who are in the, you know, second class, but it's a country in the same way that other countries are countries. Um, so I, I tend to think that, well, what does Zionist, anti-Zionist mean? Does it, if, 
if it's synonymous with two state versus one state, then let's just talk about what's the right political solution for Israelis, Jewish Israelis and Palestinian Israelis and Palestinians under occupation. Let's talk about that rather than, because that's, I don't, you know, I don't know what a solution, what a Zionist solution or an un-Zionist solution is. I have some idea of what a solution for human beings is. Um, so yeah, I just find that it's a buzzword and yet it's so vague a buzzword and so easy to clash on. I don't even know what we're clashing about anymore. Uh, when we say, oh, I'm a Zionist, I'm an anti-Zionist, oh, Zionists can't come. What does that exactly mean? Do you, does it mean people who support um, de facto annexation and, you know, I, I'm not at the point where I'm using the, the apartheid word, but but the, you know, two systems of law in one <laughs> geographical area, if, if that Zionism, then sure, I can understand why you don't want somebody there. If Zionism is something else, then, so I find that whole discourse a little bit like Zionist, not I, I don't, I'm not so comfortable with that, um, but do I think that anti-Zionism per se is anti-Semitic? No. Um, do I think sometimes it rolls over? Sure. But let's, let's deal with it on a case-by-case -case basis. I work with the British Embassy and I remember somebody asking me, so you're Jewish. Why do religions get to have countries? And I went into a whole you know, thing about, well, you know, where I come from, Jewishness is a is a ethno civilization. I'm not. I'm, I'm an atheist. I'm not religious. Or somebody said, "Why do you need your own country? Why can't you all live together?" I mean, these are the actual conversations I had with young diplomats. Um, <laughs> older diplomats tended not to ask that. But I went out to dinner with a young, new at the Israel Israel desk or Middle East or Mena desk, Middle East North Africa, and said, "Why can't you guys all just get along and have one country?" Um, and that's a perfectly legitimate. But I, I said, and I said at the time, I said, I actually think if you want to get to one state, do two states first, because I don't think either, if that's what you want to get. But I didn't take that as anti-Semitic, even if there was a, there was a whiff of anti-Zionism there, as it were. He didn't say I'm anti-Zionist, but he kind of dispensed with the need for this nation state that would be 75% Jewish. I didn't take that as anti-Semitic. Um, there's lots of, of anti-Zionists or non-Zionists who are not anti-Semitic. And yet, I'm sure that a colleague of mine once said, um, an English colleague said that um, his experience in the UK was one third of anti-Zionists, sorry, one third of people who support BDS, that's what he said, one third of people who support BDS are anti-Semitic, one third are anti-Zionists, and one third just want to do something to help stop the occupation and don't have any better, you know, they're not being given any other ideas. So this this amalgamation it's just simple and people like people like simple answers we all do i do I'm, I, I won't say you do because it's not my place but i do everyone likes a simple answer and it's hard to work against that so it's easy to say yeah anti-zionism is anti-semitic well it's harder and we have to work harder to say well sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't and i have to go examine each and every one of these cases and it's a lot of work so I find it best when I can stop myself to not talk about Zionism to talk about solutions. Um, yeah, that, that's sort of my, and again, if Zionism relates to 47, 48, let's talk about the Nakba, let's talk about what happened. Let's not say I'm anti-Zionist because 
the Zionists won that stage, as it were. They mm -hmm. wanted to create a state, they did. And it's, it is a state and it's well consolidated at this point. <laughs> so my next question is uh, kind of related, you know, you kind of addressed some challenges of language and philosophy and figuring out a way to be engaged. Um, so as a person, you know, coming, uh, becoming an activist and becoming very involved in, uh, in kind of uh, figuring out a way to create um, a platform for common conversations and common debate about the issue. Um, what type of challenges did you face personally? Was it from close people to you, from outsiders, and kind of pushing for what you believe in? Um, and what advice do you have for younger activists, Jewish or non-Jewish, who are coming to their political consciousness right now and um, trying to be more involved? Um, and the issues happening in Israel and Palestine. Yeah, I know I know the stories of a lot of people through the sort of J Street world of, you know, be careful what you say at the dinner table about Israel. I'm talking, I'm not talking about, you know, Trumpists or things like that. Um, you know, that if you come out for two states, you're going to be attacked. I, I, I'm aware of those conversations. I never had them because my family, my family was not, wasn't the topic that interested them. They're not particularly protective of Israel, not more than sort of the average mainstream. They're protective, you know, but they don't never, I never had this idea that Israel was pure and that everything 100% right. So I never had those. Um, I have been called a self hating Jew on, um, you know, I imagine it's in, it's in the hundreds of times. Um, told that I'm not Jewish. That, that's actually a fairly new one. Um, there's an inter there's an increasing discourse amongst the amongst right wing Zionists uh, or right wing pro Israel people because I'm trying to avoid Zionism as a as a um, as a, a term um, that sort of suggests and I've seen it in the seems coming from the non Jewish Trump world as well that if you criticize Israel you don't support Israel if you don't support Israel you're not really Jewish um, I'm actually very concerned about it because it seems to be a way of saying that protection against anti-Semitism doesn't really cover people like me because we're not, I'm not really Jewish, so it can't really be anti-Semitism because I don't support Israel enough. Um, so I've gotten a lot of attacks from that side. If I said I was for a settlement boycott or if I said I was, you know, things like that, a huge amount of, you know, you're a piece of excrement or you're self-hating Jew or, you know, you should be excommunicated or, I mean, just a dime a dozen, but not from family. And, and the friends I made through my youth movement and in Israel, for the most part, you know, I knew people who weren't close to me politically, but for the most part, close enough that nobody would say that. So I've been kind of insulated from that level of, of, um, of attack. Um, but yeah, I can imagine it's a, a concern uh, for people who have to, you know, come out as whatever they, you know, two status or one status or, you know, what, however it is, if your family is not there, if you are the child of somebody who, I don't know, works for the Federation, senior, you know, I imagine those are very difficult situations, but I don't have any personal um, experience on that level to, to how to navigate it, except to 
try to find allies and people who accept you for who you are, but that's sort of more general um, advice. Donald Trump made me aware of what narcissism looks like, but it also made me aware that I don't think Trump is completely isolated. I mean, in terms of this, certainly not on, not on the right, he's not isolated on the right. I think that we're in a, um, I think we're in a rather narcissistic period. And narcissism can include stuff like um, the way we look at athletes, the fact that, you know, this might seem like a tangent <laughs> or might not, you know, this idea that um, we now watch professional sports to see a team that we assembled, how they performed individually, fantasy sports is a narcissistic thing. We assembled the team. We don't care how the team does anymore. We care about our choice of this athlete on this team and this, uh, um, or the idea that we're so focused on the quarterback or this individual athlete rather. I grew up, it was a different sense. Sure, there were stars, but I think we're in a very narcissistic period. And I think that carries over into how some people look at their activism in the sense of what's called in, in sports, hero ball. Um, I'm gonna be so outspoken or so inflammatory or so, because I think somehow this is going to, I'm gonna carry everything on my back and I'm gonna be the hero here. I'm gonna get it done by, I, I'm not, I'm not really part of that. And I don't really think that over time that gets it done. Like I said, I, I learned about Edward Bernstein and evolutionary socialism, and I was not totally impressed, but I got more impressed as time went on. Um, I believe that change in some countries, you know, revolutions are necessary because there are no other tools to be had. There's no tools of democracy, there's no tools of the press. And I'm not saying that America is a, or Israel or Palestine, I'm not saying any of these places are. You know, I'm aware of the dominance of, of the, you know, the corporate dominated media or of torture that goes on. I'm not naive, but tools are available and I think that we have to use them. And I think that we have to accept that change is in almost all cases evolutionary. And I think change does happen. And I think we have to remind ourselves of examples where change does happen, even if it's not the level of change that we expect, but just to remind ourselves that it happens. And sometimes it happens when you're not expecting it. Um, the, the shift in same-sex marriage in the United States happened within a matter of five, 10 years in terms of the mainstream, in terms of people in the trenches doing the work. No, it took much, much longer. And I think that's the activist role is to prepare public opinion so that the change is digestible for the mainstream. I don't think the activists can do it without the mainstream, but I don't think the mainstream can make the shift without the activists. Um, but I think activists have to be ready for the fact that it is an incredibly frustratingly long process of, of decades that, that takes things to happen. Um, you know, between women starting to organize to get the vote and actually getting the vote in the United States. I think we're talking about 70 years. So that's the time frame when, that we sort of should expect um, for things to happen. And that's as difficult as it is, and it's easier for me now than it used to be, but that would be my, um, would be my advice that, um, you know, there's all these, um, there's all these, ta uh, all these quotes 
and they all come around the same theme. In Judaism, there's the ethics of the fathers that says you're not obligated to complete the task, but neither are you free to desist from it. Helen Keller said the world is moved along not only by the mighty shoves. I, I don't remember this by heart. I pulled this out <laughs> before we got to talking. The world is moved along not only by the mighty shoves of its heroes, but also by the aggregate of the tiny pushes of each honest worker. So um, that's my that's my advice that if you can feel comforted by the fact that you are doing you are successful even if you don't see the ultimate um the ultimate success and i don't even know what the ultimate success is because by the time we reach the point where we thought that what we thought was the success is just we now realize it's not you know barack obama being president didn't end racism even though there was this sort of sense at the time of oh okay we're in a post-racial society because there's a black president well, it wasn't. So even the idea of, of what success is is going to shift, but we're certainly not going to snap our fingers or tweet or say something incredibly inflammatory and expect all of a sudden people are going to, you know, that's going to shift the discourse in any significant way. It's a long, long, <clears throat> I think it's a long, long aggregate process. Thank you very much. That was, um, that was great advice. Uh, and I appreciated the quotes as well. Um, I want to thank you again for agreeing to be interviewed and for sharing your story with us uh, and your political journey or political awakening. Um, I just want to give you the time here um, to see if you want to add anything that I forgot to ask you about or you forgot to mention um, or you feel like you need to talk about uh, before we end. I would just mention, just to sort of give us sort of a different, slightly different frame to um, what I was just talking about now, that if political change is a marathon, not a sprint, which I believe in. Um, so I think that has implications for, I've seen, I, I, as I said in the beginning, I was not a born and bred activist. I didn't come to it, you know, but I've seen a lot of people who, um, who are more activist than I, and got further removed from it than I. And I think that, I, I can't say for sure, but I think that there's an amount of sort of sprinting in a marathon element to it that people feel so into it and they're so enamored with, I don't know, the discourse, the process, or the, the chances that they burn out really quickly. I was never, you know, I was never the quarterback or the point guard or, um, or, or felt that I was the guide. And I think there was a certain amount of burnout, but I never really burnt out. You know, I didn't start properly discussing the Nakba until maybe 15 years ago. So I think that I don't want to, I don't want what I said to be confused for, sort of like, okay, you reach your truth when you're 18 or 20 and you just sort of accept. No, you absolutely need to keep your mind open and continue learning and continue hearing other viewpoints, continue hearing uncomfortable viewpoints. That, 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 that is not, I did not mean by accepting a gradual process that you just sort of coast. There's no cruise control in that sense. But you can't put, you know, you can't just sort of snap your fingers and expect the solution to come, but you need to drive, you need to be there, you need to be in the discourse and be thinking and be constantly imaginative 
um, and be engaging and re-engaging with people and, and trying out ideas that you used to think were unacceptable, but maybe they're not. And maybe they are, or maybe they're now acceptable because things have changed. So I, I didn't want to come off as um, uh, stagnant. I don't regard myself as stagnant. I hope I'm not. I hope others who read what I write or hear what I say don't. I you know, can only control what I try to do. But, but certainly I don't mean that the slowness and the evolutionary nature means, means stagnant. So any, any, far from it, anything from it. Uh, in fact, I think that part of the marathon, uh, sorry, part of the sprint thinking is a certain dogma too um, that I would recommend to steer clear from. Um, hear what people are saying, even if they're not, don't embrace your dogma, but it's their reality and you're gonna have to convince them on the level of their reality too. And um, whether it's a radical reality or not, um, but you know we're all in this together. So yeah, I think that's the only point that I wanted to add. And um, yeah, again, thank you so much for letting me rant and ramble. <laughs> Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Um, and I want to thank our listeners, of course, for tuning in. Um, I will see you guys or we'll have another conversation with another activist, uh, hopefully soon. Bye. Bye.